Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece, is the true crime story behind the story of Dostoevsky's greatest work, Crime and Punishment, and why it changed the world. November 11th marked the 200th anniversary of Dostoevsky's birth, and author Kevin Birmingham spent years researching archival material to evoke Tsarist Russia at the birth of the Russian intelligentsia, along with Siberian prison camps, high-stakes trials, gory murders, and the details of Dostoevsky's fascinating life. Kevin Birmingham is author of New York Times bestseller, The Most Dangerous Book, which won the Penn New England Award and the Truman Capote Award for Literary Criticism, and he's been named a public scholar by the National Endowment for the Humanities. He received his Ph.D. in English from Harvard. His writing has appeared in Harper's New York Times Book Review and Chronicle of Higher Education. Kevin Birmingham, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So uh, I understand you're doing a bunch of interviews uh, today, or I guess the next little while for the launch of the book. So uh, we appreciate you taking some time with us. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm I'm totally happy to be here. Thank you. Um, so a previous book was about uh, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses. Uh, are there any parallels between the you know James Joyce, Faulkner, Ulysses, Crime and Punishment? Well, the parallels are really in the way that I uh, tell these stories. You know, I. I described my first book, uh, The Most Dangerous Book, as the biography of a book. It sort of goes into, it it describes what it meant to uh, write Ulysses and the difficulty involved in getting Ulysses legalized because it was banned as obscene for over a decade. And uh, my new book, The Sinner and the Saint, is also uh, a biography of a book. So in this case, it's the making of Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's great novel, and a French murderer named Pierre-Francois Lassenier, who was the partial inspiration for that novel. What drew you to Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, this, this story, the biography of this book? Well, Dostoevsky had an incredible life, and for years I had been interested in writing about Dostoevsky, but couldn't figure out a way of doing it until I stumbled upon the story of Lassenier. What made Dostoevsky's life interesting is... You know, by the age of 24, before he had published any novels, he was already being celebrated as one of Russia's premier novelists, and he was being celebrated in St. Petersburg for it. Fast forward just four years when he's 28, and before dawn one morning, he was arrested by the Tsar's secret police, and he spent nearly a decade in Siberia for crimes against the Tsar because he was uh, critical of the Tsarist regime and critical of serfdom. So by the time he came back to Russia, and to European Russia, I should say, in 1860, he was effectively starting his career all over again. He was suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy, which changed the way his brain worked, changed the way he saw the world and the way he saw himself. He had gambling addiction, he was indebted chronically, and made him sign awful contracts, rushed through his work. So that the basic elements of Dostoevsky's life I thought were fascinating and a great study in creativity and how a great novelist worked. And when I stumbled across this other story about Pierre-Francois Lassenaire, and particularly when I realized that he wrote his own memoirs in the weeks before he was executed, I thought here was an opportunity to tell two stories uh, and to weave them together, and that this would be a new way of looking not only at Dostoevsky in general, but uh, in crime and punishment in particular. Yeah, two uh, very fascinating stories. 
Um, so uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, Dostoevsky's early life. Understand he lost his mother fairly early. His father, we think, yeah. was murdered. Yes. Yeah, so he, he was an orphan by the time he was seventeen. His mother died when he was fifteen. His father was overbearing, had very clear uh, intentions for his sons, wanted Dostoevsky to become an engineer, and so sent him to the engineering academy, which Dostoevsky hated. His father was uh, on his estate when word uh, reached Dostoevsky that he was dead, and the word more particularly was that he was murdered by his serfs. The estate had about 20 serfs, which was not very much at the time. It was not a very wealthy estate. Uh, Dostoevsky, of course, was shocked. Uh, it probably increased his hatred for the institution of serfdom. Uh, but at the same time, because this authority figure in his life was suddenly stripped away, he felt as if he had a brief moment to prove himself as a writer. He renounced his estate in exchange for 1,000 silver rubles, and that was the money that he was going to use to support himself while he wrote his first novel, which did indeed become a success. Uh, though he quickly realized that being a writer in Russia at the time was very, very difficult if that's what you were trying to do to pay the bills. There were not even very many people who were literate at the time, so the audiences were very small. Uh, you can see Dostoevsky being frustrated both with his work and with his writing and the pace of his writing as he starts to drift a little bit more towards politics, and politics is what gets him in trouble and sends him to Siberia. And so it's really in Siberia where everything about Dostoevsky's writing changed, where he encountered criminals, where he encountered murderers. And so when he comes back to St. Petersburg in 1860, this is where we really see the second act of Dostoevsky's career. It was really the, the greatest act of his career. So uh, what got him sent to Siberia? Was this, he, he was against the institution of serfdom. Was that the primary cause? He, he fell into politics here. Right. So he was part of, uh, I, I guess you could call it a, a progressive reading circle. It met secretly in uh, an apartment. The man was known as uh, Petrushevsky, so it was known as the Petrushevsky Circle. They read forbidden books, books that were published in Europe, books that were about either democracy or uh, legislative assemblies or socialism, books that were outright forbidden uh, in Russia at the time, because the Tsar was trying to crack down on any hint of revolution. So this is happening just after the 1848 revolutions that were sweeping Europe at the time. Uh, the Tsar's regime was panicked uh, that a revolution would take place in Russia, and a spy had infiltrated the reading group and was reporting back on all of the things that were said, including Dostoevsky's statements. There were incendiary statements that he made uh, against serfdom. And that's why the Tsar's secret police uh, suddenly arrested all of them simultaneously and uh, were effectively charged with, uh, with sedition. Um, he was conspiring to uh, to print propaganda on a homemade uh, lithograph. Luckily, the authorities did not discover that he was planning to do that, because if they had, he probably or possibly could have been executed uh, and would have died. We wouldn't have had any of the novels that we have today. Hmm. As it was, he, was uh, he and the others were put in front of a firing squad, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So after nine months of being in a prison in the middle of St. Petersburg, when Dostoevsky was required to write out his confession multiple times, they were uh, all of the convicts were dragged out to a square in the middle of St. Petersburg. Three men were tied to stakes. There were hoods uh, placed over their heads. A firing squad uh, took aim. Dostoevsky was next in line, and at the very last moment, the Tsar's envoy galloped into the square triumphantly and announced that in the Tsar's great mercy, they were not going to be executed. They would instead be sent to Siberia. So in a way, he was the, you know, the victim of a of, you know, theater uh, that the Tsar had put on to display both his immense power, his ability to kill people if he wanted, and his great mercy uh, to spare the lives of the people who betrayed him. Mm. Uh, just to, for for those not familiar with Dostoevsky and the, the time frame, where, uh, his first novel came out in 1846, right? Uh, sent to Siberia, yeah. what, the late late 1840s? Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, so... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask uh, about his about his time in, in Siberia and and this. Did he have a fascination with the criminals, murderers? At that point, he got to interact with with these folks. Right. Yes. So before Siberia, Dostoevsky was a writer of gothic tales to some degree, not entirely, but some of his uh, tales involved uh, you know attempted murder or violence. But he never actually met a murderer before. That all changed when he went to Siberia. He was imprisoned in Omsk and was uh, in a fortress prison, sleeping in a, uh, a prison barracks with other criminals. Uh, many of them were murderers themselves. They were thieves. They were uh, prisoners of war. And he was captivated by their stories, their own stories of crimes. And he kept asking them questions about them. And it was basically over those years that his perspective changed, that his writing changed, that his subject material changed. It grew deeper. He was horrified by what he was listening to, but uh, nonetheless uh, drawn further into this morbid sense of curiosity, right? People who kill sometimes compulsively, uh, like they live calm, normal, everyday lives, and then uh, one day something snaps. And uh, he he calls it a convulsion, that uh, sometimes murderers are doing this out of a, a desire to to change everything, to turn everything upside down in order to, for one fleeting moment, feel free. To feel as if, you know, if I do something drastic enough, perhaps my life will change completely. Uh, that was one of the uh, many examples of the types of uh, crimes that Dostoevsky uh, began thinking about uh, in Siberia. Uh, he wrote a book about his time in Siberia, I believe. Yeah, Notes uh, from a Dead House. Yeah. So when Dostoevsky burst back onto the scene, that was the book that uh, uh, got him attention once again. His name, as you can imagine, was not uh, spoken about at all for years because he was persona non grata as a convicted criminal. But uh, he was given permission to publish again by the Tsar, and he wanted to write an account of his time in Siberia. He knew everyone in Russia would be interested in it because no one really knew anything about it. However, it would not be legal for him to do so as nonfiction. So he effectively published it 
as if it were fiction. There's a very thin veil of fiction surrounding it. He, he assumes another name, pretends to have a different background. But once we get into the story, into the details of what it's like to live in a Siberian fortress prison, to have the fetters around your ankles, to be uh, whipped by uh, commanding officers, all of these things, those things were real. So it was nonfiction that was masquerading as fiction. And when it was published... It made a huge sensation. Tolstoy, in particular, was completely enamored with it. Um, he thought it was one of the great works of uh, Western literature, and the, you know the voices that appear in in Dead House are voices that Dostoevsky starts to work with over and over again as time goes on, and that material is just so rich, and uh, that was his um, uh, the Renaissance of his career, really. So the young Dostoevsky who who goes to Siberia or sent to Siberia, I don't know if you could describe him as an idealist. He's he's you know he he has ideals that he's writing about, believing in. What 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 about the Dostoevsky who comes out of Siberia? He's a little bit more pragmatic. He realizes the folly of thinking that you could simply overturn serfdom by talking about it. He had no experience as. As a revolutionary, he had no plans for what he would actually do. Uh, as it turned out, shortly after Dostoevsky returned to St. Petersburg, the czar, the succeeding czar, uh, Alexander II, uh, freed the serfs. So that issue was, in a way, taken off the table. But instead of having that uh, announcement uh, pacify the young revolutionaries in Russia, it made them uh, more apt to ask for more extensive uh, reforms. When Dostoevsky was looking at these younger people by the time he returned, he could recognize something of his own younger self in these people. He could sympathize with what they wanted to do, with the changes that they wanted to make, but he also saw the folly in it. And the younger radicals, the radicals of the 1860s, were uh, called nihilists. And the way he described the nihilists is that they were people who wanted to construct a paradise on a tabula rasa, on a blank slate. And what this showed, what Dostoevsky saw in the nihilists, was both the pleasure they had in creating a paradise, but also the pleasure they had in wiping everything away, in creating the tabula rasa, that there was a destructive impulse in these revolutionaries. And what Dostoevsky worried about was how they wanted to destroy absolutely everything that was good, that was working in Russia, that was a part of their culture, their tradition, their history, while on their way to a future paradise. So he could see how they were idealistic to a fault. And when he wrote Crime and Punishment, what he was doing was writing a novel about what it means to be a young man thinking about goodness rather than a young man who actually feels goodness. Right? Where goodness is sort of an abstract ideal, something you reason your way towards. But Dostoevsky thought, no, 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 that's not really the way it works. The only way to be good is to feel this uh, compassion for other people. 
Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back with the uh, next segment with uh, Kevin Birmingham. Uh, fascinating book, The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. It's the true crime story behind the story of uh, Dostoevsky's greatest work, Crime and Punishment, and why it uh, changed uh, the world. Um, and the author is uh, Kevin Birmingham, but previously author of the New York Times bestseller, The Most Dangerous Book. And The Sinner and the Saint is out now. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Silicon Slopes Magazine, a hub of Utah startups, business, and tech, contributing articles and insights from the Utah community. Information on advertising in print and digital versions at siliconslopesmagazine.com. On the Caribbean island of Grenada, a violent coup has taken place, and a group of flagging American politicians want their piece of the action. We're going into Grenada. On purpose? Yeah. Little chaos down there answers a lot of critics up here. Halcyon Days by Stephen Dietz. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9, here on Utah Public Radio. USU's Bringing War Home Project will host an online book discussion of Tim O'Brien's The Things We Carried, Tuesday, November 16th at 7.30 p.m. Participants should come prepared to discuss the first short story of the book. The evening also will include writing exercises to create your own accounts of your experiences of war. For the event link and more information on the Bringing War Home Project, visit our website at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're pleased to have with us a writer, Kevin Birmingham. His latest book is called The Sinner and the Saint. The subtitle is Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murder Who Inspired a Masterpiece. It's the true crime story behind the story of Dostoevsky's greatest work, Crime and Punishment. And uh, we're talking about all of the, you know, the Dostoevsky's world and to get into talking about the creation of uh, Crime and Punishment here. Fascinating story. Um, so Kevin Birmingham... Uh, tell me a little bit more about the the, the scene there in St. Petersburg when Dostoevsky comes back from uh, Siberia. You've talked about nihilism, these young uh, radicals that uh, Dostoevsky can see more clearly now. He, he used to be, I guess, uh, one of them or, or uh, of that kind. Um, what else was going on there in St. Petersburg? The first signs of trouble took place when there were anonymous leaflets that began to uh, appear on the streets uh, of St. Petersburg. Uh, they could be stuffed into uh, doorknobs, and they were left on theater seats. They were on street corners. They were printed privately. Uh, this was illegal in Russia. You had to register any printing press with the authorities. And they were incendiary. They were calling for violent revolution, if necessary, to overthrow the Tsar to overthrow the landowners, uh, to change the way the land was, um, was cultivated, uh, who owned the land. Some of the uh, pamphlets that were being distributed were socialist in nature. Some of them uh, advocated for democracy, for legislative assemblies. Some wanted uh, constitutions. What alarmed Dostoevsky was the willingness in the voices of these pamphlets, you know, that were coming out of them, uh, to resort to violence if necessary. And th the rhetoric that was clearly intended to spur 
violent impulses in other people to take uh, uh, to take your axes uh, to bring them out into the streets to burn down um, the uh, you know government houses. What happens by coincidence, probably by coincidence, is that just as these pamphlets were appearing, large fires started to sweep St. Petersburg. It's not clear these days whether or not those fires were arson or whether they were accidental fires were sweeping Petersburg all the time. But given the environment, people assumed that uh, revolutionaries, nihilists as they were called, were, uh, were destroying the city in an attempt to effectively start over. So this was the, the environment that Dostoevsky found himself in. Basically, what he wanted to do was chart a middle course between the nihilists and the, the old czarists. The, the conservative regime, uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, he sympathized with the young radicals, because in a way he was a young radical himself, but at the same time he knew how destructive radicalism could be, and he thought that they were trying to throw away too much in order to achieve their ends. It was very, very difficult for him to uh, achieve this middle path, and as time went on, the two sides just kept getting wider and wider. Crime and punishment was an attempt to um, uh, to critique the the radicals. Uh, Raskolnikov is meant to be someone like a young radical, but also to sympathize with them, to see where they're coming from. And um, the result was a novel that uh, that split his audience into people who loved crime and punishment and people who hated it. Mm. Um, by the way, Vlad- Vladimir Nabokov uh, <laughs> it's not a fan, I understand. Yeah. No, he, you know, Nabokov is famous for, you know, having strong opinions about everyone. He seems to uh, have had a, a particular ire for Dostoevsky. Um, I, you know, it's, it's not always easy to see why Nabokov loved or didn't love a particular writer. Uh, it is clear, however, that he was interested in his uh, short story, The Double, and used the double uh, in his own fiction. And uh, one senses some degree of competitiveness with uh, his forebears. You know, he, of course, Nabokov was a Russian writer and had to contend with the shadow of Russian writers at the time. Uh, Nabokov did not like existentialism. Part of the reason why he was reacting so hard, so harshly against Dostoevsky is because the rise of existentialism as a philosophy in the 1950s and 60s in the United States also made Dostoevsky a, uh, a celebrated writer. In fact, his appeal was increasing pretty dramatically, partly because of uh, the rise of existentialism. And the existentialists were you know, interested in the problems of free will, what it meant to be a free person, and these were the some of the themes that Dostoevsky himself uh, mulls over again and again. As you mentioned earlier, Tolstoy was a fan at least of uh, House of the Dead, right? Yeah, so Tolstoy and Dostoevsky never knew each other. They were, um, you know, contemporaries. Tolstoy was just a few years younger than Dostoevsky. Portions of War and Peace were being serialized in the same magazine issues as Crime and Punishment. So if you were a subscriber to um, the Russian Herald in 1866, you were treated with two incredible novels side by side. They admired each other from afar. They were very 
different writers. You know, the way I like to think of it is that Tolstoy wrote from the outside in, and Dostoevsky wrote from the inside out. You know, Tolstoy had a an incredible, uh, you know, panoptic view of society and, and liked to have large canvases. And Dostoevsky liked to begin with individual people, individual voices, and have uh, his stories, you know, emerge out from there. But um, uh, in particular, yeah, he he loved Tolstoy. Loved uh, uh, notes from a dead house, and um, uh, told a mutual friend of theirs, "Please tell Dostoevsky I love him." Um, after reading uh, Dead House, so yeah. Uh, again, just parenthetically, we'll move on to uh, crime and punishment. But uh, I, I understand that uh, Dostoevsky is held in very high regard today in Russia. Yes, I don't think his his you know his light has ever really dimmed, and I think it's because, you know, he's uh, well because he had such a, a complicated life, and because his feelings and books are so complicated, it is possible for you to pick out different elements of Dostoevsky in order to uh, have him say what you want him to say, which is you know not really fair to the writer himself. But if you were a uh, a Russian nationalist and someone who really agree, uh, agreed with the greatness of Russia, you could point to Dostoevsky and to things that Dostoevsky wrote as um, a support for your cause. However, if you also think that uh, nation states are um, self-defeating, that they are uh, problematic, that they are involved in great injustices, you could also point to Dostoevsky as someone who um, uh, supports your cause. He was imprisoned by the Tsar. Uh, it's certainly not to um, the you know the authorities' credit that they jailed one of their best talents. Uh, but he later became someone who uh, supported the Tsar, supported Tsarism to some degree, and uh, supported uh, uh, Russian Orthodoxy as as a religion. Before we get into uh, the, the the novel, um, the making of the novel. I wonder if you tell me a little bit more about Dostoevsky, the man. He he seems he had a serious gambling addiction, for one thing. You've talked about his epileptic seizures. He he had some uh, severe problems he was dealing with. Right. The seizures uh, are fascinating, partly because they change the way we understand uh, epilepsy today. Dostoevsky talked in detail about some of his seizures, and in particular he talked about what is known as an ecstatic aura. So in a split second before he experienced a seizure, he would have this feeling of unimaginable bliss that would overcome him. He said that, you know, he felt as if paradise had sort of touched down onto earth. All time and space would melt away. He felt completely self-assured. He felt calm and confident. All the things that Dostoevsky never felt in his normal life, he would feel for just one very brief instant before the seizure took hold and he would lose consciousness. Now, he was describing this in, you know, the 1870s. Um, for nearly a century, doctors more or less ignored this. But around uh, the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, it's, it started to become consensus that ecstatic auras like this are common, that many people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, where the, you know, the the electrical impulses begin in, in someone's temporal lobe and then spread out throughout the entire brain. 
that people will experience these feelings. And so a lot of what we understand about the nature of a seizure um, uh, comes from Dostoevsky. Unfortunately, right after this feeling of bliss, after a seizure, the period after the seizure has plunged him into deep depressions. He described what he called a fog in his brain. It was not easy for him to write. Sometimes it was impossible for him to write. As time went on, he started losing his memory a little bit. It was not easy for him to recognize faces as well. So uh, it did very much change the way his brain worked. But for uh, a long amount of time, he was able to channel the extremes of these experiences and, uh, and harness them and put them into his novels. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting in the research for uh, this book is that there's been a lot of very recent research into temporal lobe epilepsy, and it appears as if one of the potential causes, or one of the potential effects of temporal lobe epilepsy for someone who experiences it over and over again is uh, impulsive behavior. And it's quite possible that Dostoevsky's gambling addiction came from, stemmed from his epilepsy. And you can see that his gambling addiction gets worse and worse over time. Now, we'll never know that for sure, but uh, the connection is certainly potentially there. If you just joined us, we're talking with the writer Kevin Birmingham. His most recent book out just now is The Sinner and the Saint, and the subtitle is Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. It's the story behind the story of Dostoevsky's greatest work, Crime and Punishment. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell me now about this gentleman murderer. Uh, Dostoevsky apparently was fascinated uh, by by this uh, this person, Pierre-Francois Lassenaire. Yeah, so uh, Lassenaire was, uh, he came from a wealthy family. Uh, they were in the luxury goods business. They were in the iron business. And so as he was growing up uh, in Lyon, out, or, you know, in the center of Lyon, actually, uh, he always imagines that he would be the heir to a great fortune. Uh, he had uh, a turbulent youth. He uh, was involved in, you know, uh, I don't know, petty truancy, things like that. Uh, he went off into the military uh, for a campaign in Greece. And when he came back to France, he discovered that his family went bankrupt, that they suddenly had no money. And so what we have is a, a young man who doesn't exactly know what to do with his life, uh, always thought that he would be wealthy, but now finds himself uh, being completely disrespected because he's poor. And he very quickly nurtures a grievance against society uh, for the fact that this is happening to him. Uh, it's that grievance that uh, probably fuels... Um, uh, his his murder spree. So his ultimate plan was to uh, rob and murder collecting clerks for banks. Banks usually would send clerks out to collect on checks where they would collect banknotes. So in their satchels, they often had thousands of francs uh, as well as banknotes. What he wanted to do was uh, rent an apartment and rent furniture and lure a collecting clerk up into an apartment by pretending to uh, have a, uh, a banknote that needed to be collected upon. And having that 
decoy apartment and the decoy furniture required him to have money. So in order for him to get money, he robbed a, uh, I shouldn't say robbed, he, uh, he murdered and robbed a former prison mate of his named Chardon and uh, had to murder his mother as well, who was also in the apartment. It turned out that there was not nearly as much money in that apartment as they thought there was, uh, but there was enough for them to get the, uh, the scheme together. So, uh, uh, so it began as a life of really petty crime started to escalate uh, very quickly. There's little indication that Lassonier really cared very much about anything other than being wealthy, uh, but when he wanted to write his own memoirs, he pretended that this was the case, that he was doing so for revolutionary purposes. That, you know, the idea was that, you know, if you could kill a king for the benefit of your country, if it's an unjust king, then why not kill a banker? And if you can kill a banker for the benefit of your society, why can't you kill a banker's clerk? And what he wanted to do was link himself to revolutionary violence, and this notion of revolutionary violence is just starting to percolate uh, in Europe at the time. And so when you see the sort of cults surrounding Lassenaire, part of what you're seeing is this interest in violence as a tool to change society, which is not something that people thought of as a legitimate or viable thing at the time. So there's this celebrity that seems to be new and unusual that Dostoevsky was trying to tap into because he saw a version of that in the nihilists uh, in Russia in the 1860s. Lessoner apparently was was not repentant at all, right? Um, no, of... he you know was uniquely uh, suave about uh, about murder. He said it's possible that he was joking, uh, but he said that you know I kill a man as I drink a glass of wine. Uh, though the fact that he might have been joking about it is itself revelatory, because he seems to take everything in stride. He very freely admitted his crimes uh, at his trial. He even pantomimed the, the gesture that he made as he was stabbing uh, one of his victims so that everyone could see exactly how he did it. Uh, he was completely uninterested in the proceedings of his own trial. He was reading a newspaper at the time. Sometimes he was writing his own memoirs. Uh, he looked forward to his own death. Uh, the guillotine that uh, that killed him, that beheaded him, uh, actually malfunctioned uh, on his execution day. The blade got uh, caught in the groove uh, of the wood uh, as it was going down. And when it got caught, Lassenaire was able to contort his body so that he could turn uh, and face the blade itself. Instead of facing downward, he turned his body so that he could stare at the blade as they hoisted it back up again, then dropped it. Um, so there was a, uh, a free, uh, almost um, insouciant, uh, you know, uh, acceptance of, uh, of his own death, uh, because he was convinced that he was going to meet nothingness, that he was a prophet of nothingness. And this, too, this other detail is something that makes its way into the nihilists uh, of the 1860s, in Russia. So Dostoevsky uh, wrote, uh, I guess, an essay. That's uh, the first thing he did about Lassenaire, right? And and he he write, Dostoevsky writes, murder trials 
are more exciting than all possible novels because they light up the dark sides of the human soul that art does not like to approach. So what was, uh, so this this was a kernel, right, of, of what um, Dostoevsky would put into Crime and Punishment. What, uh, what was he attempting here in Crime and Punishment? Well, it was, uh, you know, Dostoevsky called him, uh, it was the personality that was just shocking to him. You know, he says, you know, he's a remarkable personality. He tells his readers, this is Dostoevsky, he says that, you know, he's enigmatic, he's frightening, he's gripping. There was a cold-heartedness to it that Dostoevsky couldn't really shake. It stayed on his mind uh, for years. He intended to write something, an article about Lassenaire, something more explicit, something in more detail about his instincts and things like that. But the uh, the magazine that he had with his brother uh, was was halted by the czar, so he never got around to writing that uh, article. Uh, luckily, he was able to find some of these themes and use them in um, in crime and punishment. But it's the the absolute lack of feeling that Lafayette had, a lack of feeling for other people, that he starts to import into Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is isolated. He's alone. He sort of sleeps in what is described as like a, a little cupboard or a coffin, this tiny room uh, on the top floor of a building. Uh, his family is far away. He doesn't really know very many people. He's not friendly with the people that he does know. And it's difficult for him to form any emotional connection with another person. And he saw that as, you know, you know, a Russian version of what was going on with Lafayette, that there's no real connection to other human beings. And in the absence of that connection is a philosophy that starts to spin itself out as a substitute for, um, for empathic feeling, right? It was altruism that came out of a philosophy rather than altruism coming from, from empathy. Um, and so uh, that's the thing that, uh, that Dostoevsky wanted, uh, wanted to do. Let's take another break, uh, come back with our last segment. Uh, we'll get more into Crime and Punishment, uh, the great novel. And uh, the book is The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. It's the story behind the story of Dostoevsky's greatest work, Crime and Punishment. Uh, the author is Kevin Birmingham. The book is out now, and uh, we'll have more following this. Dr. Jen Gunter's mission is to help people feel less shame about their basic bodily functions. Everybody poops. This is one of those things people never talk about. Like, why is your poop any more shameful than your runny nose? That's what I want to know. The truth about how our bodies work and what's best for our health. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday mornings at 10 on UPR. With all the anger in the country and your own life. The hormones that your body's releasing, adrenaline, cortisol, they're slowly killing you. <laughs> the healthier response is laughing. But it's getting tougher. We've got all these unwritten rules about who can laugh and who can't laugh. The latest laughter research, laughter experts, and stupid jokes to help you laugh at more things more often. Join us for a special program called LOL on UPR, Friday, November 19th at 10 a.m. Made possible by the USU Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at idrpp.usu.edu. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, the writer Kevin Birmingham, and uh, his latest book is The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murderer Who Inspired a Masterpiece. We're talking about crime and punishment. So you said earlier in our conversation, Kevin Birmingham, that uh, Raskolnikov was an example of, uh, of someone who, I guess, had the, uh, an idea of goodness, uh, but, but doesn't have the feeling. You st- said before, you know, this, the, the, the head and the heart, right? Uh, Raskolnikov certainly doesn't have empathy. Um, and uh, you know, a very simple uh, plot, Raskolnikov, a young student, murders an old pawnbroker and her sister, and uh, then uh, Dostoevsky, you know, spends the rest of the novel. Why does he do this? And uh, you know, there are other things that happen. Um, but I wonder if you could expand on what um, the, some of the. Uh, well, let me put it this way: uh, you say that uh, crime and punishment um, is. Uh, I'm trying to find this here. Is about the failure of ideas, not not about ideas itself. Right. It's about how, you know, ideas can very, very easily lead us astray, even if they're well-intended. And ideas are so malleable that they're almost not reliable. And that if Dostoevsky had his way, people would be focusing on cultivating their their compassion and their feeling for other people rather than uh, retreating into books and into theories about what it would mean to be good. And, you know, while Raskolnikov is alone and retreating into these books, there are still, you know, flashes of goodness within him that we can see. What Dostoevsky wants to do is basically tell us, you know, there is lurking somewhere in this young man a sense of compassion and pity for other people, and... Uh, but he keeps turning away from it. And the more he turns away from it, when he turns away from that innate compassion that he has and relies upon um, self-aggrandizing theory, the worse it is. One of the things that's remarkable about crime and punishment is that, you know, we normally think of good and evil as being uh, diametrically opposed, that they're polar opposites. But in crime and punishment, it's clear that they're not polar opposites. They are instincts, they are things that inhabit the same spaces, that you can try to be good and narrowly miss and become really awfully evil. But an evil person can also turn back and become good once again, that they're not poles apart, that they, you know, are side by side walking on these uh, foggy streets of of St. Petersburg. Um, So this was a very important novel, not only in uh, Dostoevsky's career, but, you know, for, for novels. What, uh, what was its effect? What, uh, what impact did it have? Well, uh, what was surprising about Crime and Punishment is that a novelist was trying to tell a murder story from a murderer's perspective. And the thing that was even more disturbing than that is the intimacy with which we know the murderer that were, in a way, hovering over his shoulder. And it was a depiction of consciousness that really captivated people. We were always seeing things through Raskolnikov's perspective. We were hallucinating as he hallucinates. We have the fever dreams as he has 
has the fever dreams or confused the way he's confused or our heart is pounding as we're inside the apartment where the two bodies are lying dead and someone is, is knocking on the door. We're worried with him. And it's disturbing to be placed within the consciousness of a murderer, partly because it implicates us. It makes us feel like we, too, are murderers, that we, too, are guilty. This is what Dostoevsky wanted. And the detail and the force with which she depicts consciousness is one of the things that changed the novel really forever. The novel, you know, as time goes on, especially as we enter into the 20th century, becomes a medium that is best at depicting consciousness better than any other medium. And it's the thing that Tolstoy, when he talked about crime and punishment later, says that, you know, this isn't really a novel about a murder. Of course, I'm paraphrasing here. but This isn't a novel about a murder. This is a, a novel about consciousness and how massive and tragic actions can come from very tiny, tiny things. And that's both the opportunity of consciousness and the danger of consciousness, that it can swerve in unpredictable directions so easily. You write that there's some readers mistakenly believe that Raskolnikov at the end of this novel is redeemed. So that's, that's a misreading. Right. Most people, you know, if, if your listeners have read Crime and Punishment, probably think that in the epilogue, Raskolnikov finds God and there's a happily ever after sort of ending. I think this is the wrong way to read it. I don't think that that's actually true. There is a gesture towards the possibility that that might happen. But there are a couple of things that are very unsettling about the ending of Crime and Punishment. One is that Raskolnikov is never actually contrite for his murders. He's uh, sad that he's done them. But there's no real sense of remorse for the fact that two women's lives have been lost because of him. And this is true even after he turns himself into the authorities. And the second thing is that Raskolnikov, like Dostoevsky before him, uh, is sent to Siberia, and he has a Bible, because the Bible is the only book you're actually allowed to read in a Siberian prison. The Bible was given to him, and Raskolnikov has it under his pillow, but he doesn't open it. He never actually opens the Bible. So we're sort of left on this precipice. We're not exactly sure what's going to happen to Raskolnikov. It's possible that he will find God and be redeemed, but the ending is much more ambiguous than uh, than a first reading uh, might have it seem. Just have a couple minutes left. Um, I definitely want to get this in uh, at in the epilogue. Raskolnikov, uh, lying in a prison hospital, has a fever dream. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating what what Raskolnikov is thinking, feeling, seeing in in this this dream. I wonder if you tell us about this just very briefly. Yeah, he dreams that there is a plague uh, that uh, emerges from China, and the plague comes and infects uh, everyone in Europe. And the effects of the plague are that. Everyone who is infected with this, with this virus, he doesn't use the word virus, of course, everyone who is infected with the illness believes that he or she is the only source for truth uh, and facts. And this 
virus causes people to uh, divide against themselves, to fight, to squabble, all cooperation in society suddenly stops and ceases because it's not possible anymore. And uh, this is the dream that Raskolnikov has, and it's effectively a dream that warns about the dangers of uh, a philosophy, of uh, idealizing things, the dream that uh, you yourself are the source of all truth. What's really true is that we depend upon one another, that we are part of a community, that we know things because of communities, and that we have to act on behalf of communities and for the betterment of the people around us. And it's when we stop uh, doing that that we get in ourselves into trouble. Now, this was written in, what, the 1860s? Uh, yes, 1866. 1860s, yeah, I... I... I'm sure I'm not alone in drawing some parallels to today uh, from that. Right. Yeah. Um, we'll, exactly. We'll leave it there. Um, fascinating book, uh, The Sinner and the Saint, Dostoevsky and the Gentleman Murder Who Inspired the Masterpiece, A Masterpiece. It's the story behind the story of Dostoevsky's greatest work, Crime and Punishment. The author is Kevin Birmingham. And uh, Kevin Birmingham, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. It started simply enough. My mom, weary from decades of holiday cooking, requested a little help with a Thanksgiving menu from my husband, Tom. She asked the right person. Tom served for 11 years as an army cook and a couple more as a sous chef. He makes a mean turkey and the fluffy rolls to go with it. Still, All those years ago, none of us knew we were witnessing the beginnings of what would become a wonder of epic proportions, a culinary saga spanning generations. It is the Thanksgiving Matrix, with a capital M. You mathy types may envision a matrix as a grid of numbers. Others may conjure an alternate reality with trench coats. You're both right. Just throw in cubes of butter and replace the trench coats with French toast. The Thanksgiving Matrix is a tightly scheduled, fully annotated Excel spreadsheet with tabs for recipes, mealtimes, assigned cooks, cleanup crews, even photos. It is not to be trifled with, though you may find instructions for trifle in the dessert section. Everyone receives food assignments, often several. The classics serve as an anchor, turkeys, one made just for leftovers, mashed potatoes, and gravy. Less traditional favorites also fill the spreadsheets. Three-tier maple pecan cake, raspberry pretzel salad, which it turns out is nothing like a salad, even cheesy carrots, a comforting casserole of cheddar and veggie goodness. Our family would brave crowded airports just for the cheesy carrots. The Matrix keeps us on task and on schedule. It's a good thing as our holiday gatherings continue to grow. What started as the fourth Thursday in November creeped into the entire weekend. With fresh gingerbread scones for breakfast, grandpa's rolls at lunch, and peanut butter bonbons during movie night, no one wants to leave. We've also expanded from the founding members to add new Matrix contributors. Feeding an extended family of 25 is no small feat. Established members bake their signature dishes. New members offer flavors from their own families. Younger additions even step up to the plate, dipping chocolates, stirring gravy, and icing cranberry date bars. 
Viewed in its abundance, our Thanksgiving matrix reads like a delicious family tree. Recipes passed down for generations and through in-laws join in one mouth-watering place. And really, they aren't recipes. They're childhood memories caught in a whiff. Tributes to beloved family members who have passed. While the meal draws us together, it's not about the skill or the creativity poured into decadent dishes. It is our connections with each other, laughing, remembering, teasing, debating, all warmed over pumpkin pie. Though intimidating at first glance, our detailed menu ensures every dish is honored, every table is cleared, and everyone is invited, as long as they follow the matrix. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. Understanding gender differences can help us raise girls and boys to be more competent and confident. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In these next three podcast episodes, we'll explore how the female brain differs from the male brain, the biological and socialized differences, and how they manifest in men and women in terms of risk, confidence, and empathy. Tune in now at utwomen.org. There's no Renaissance music written specifically for string quartet. So violinist Maureen Nelson decided to fix that. Coming up, members of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra perform a Renaissance suite created by their fellow violinist Maureen Nelson. It's on the next performance today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.